We're going to turn to the Word of God in Isaiah 58, and it's page 735 in your Bibles in the pew. For it says, Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their rebellion, and to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out, they seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please, and you exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is this what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here am I. Well, I want to say this morning, Phil, it's wonderful to be back at Knox, because I recall a few months ago, this wonderful church allowed for a campaign to have a worship service. I serve on the board of Micah Challenge International, which has a campaign going which says, shining a light on corruption. And so a few months ago, we held a service, a Toronto-wide service on that theme. I thought to myself, if Isaiah the prophet can get people's attention with a trumpet blast, I'll invite my Salvation Army trumpeter to come. And so here on my left, he stood, and he blasted out an Isaiah 58 trumpet blast, getting our attention. And yet as we think about those words, shout with a voice of trumpet blast, tell my people of their sins. This is an unforgettable attention getter, isn't it? We all stood up, we all woke up inside. And perhaps for us this morning, it's a precursor to your theme. What is the Spirit saying to Knox this morning? What is it saying to you? Was it, what is it saying to myself? 
And yet I want to suggest to you, listening to a trumpet is not enough, or an organ, or a piano, or a voice. I believe we want to hear God's trumpet, but not only as an attention device or the unmistakable voice of the Spirit. But we want to understand why do we need to listen to the Spirit? So hearing the trumpet and listening out in the same moment for the message that will be given. This morning, I want to share with you my week. In that, I believe I heard a trumpet blast that has been with me in the night hours. Yes, I am with the World Evangelical Alliance, which represents you this morning, I hope, 650 million Christians around the world whose good news of the gospel belief wants to send out a trumpet message about our conviction, about our compassion, about our conscience. So part of my responsibility this week was crafting that message that came out of the Vatican, that came out of the World Council of Churches, about what's going on in Iraq, which we prayed for earlier in the service. ISIS, that threat on communities, causing the United Nations to sit up and take notice, causing the President of the United States to say, do we drop bombs or do we drop food and water? The trumpet call of the Spirit for me came, yes, in the headlines, understanding the political nuances, but more than that, sitting with a producer friend at Context with Lorna Duke office, who we drive back and forth very often, and we sit and chat about the world. And he said to me, but Christine, what I've noticed, he, a father of two young boys, said to me, which has never left me since he told me, I'm concerned about the fathers of these young children who are under threat. And when the terrorist footsteps are heard coming up the mountain, fathers are taking their children in their arms and throwing them off the mountain realizing this is the loving choice in the moment. For when the terrorist takes a hold of their child, how much worse the suffering could be. That has been the why behind the trumpet blast for me in this week. And as we think about the way in which God would speak to us this morning, the prophet Isaiah doesn't let us get away with the sins of the headlines. For he says to us this morning in Isaiah 58, I've got something to say about your sins. We, as I've heard in the service, you've helped us understand, we do not distinguish between greater sins and what we perceive would be our little sins. That is not how God looks at it this morning. And so the prophet is wanting to remind us of something. And perhaps reminders of our sin only engage us in our deep hunger and thirst and our need for God's forgiveness this morning.
our needs for, for God's help to help us on the journey of life. The realization that the headline news of the world are trumpet blasts, but God says, listen in, my friend. I have something to say to you. For the intricacies of evil and sin and the needed response help us when we understand ourselves, understand the greater world. Reading that book of Isaiah and indeed chapter 58, carefully determine for us what is the Spirit saying? Particularly, if we look at the first few verses, we see a people of God very important in their minds on keeping up appearances. It is Sunday morning. We're in an absolutely beautiful sanctuary. We have all the appearance of God being with us. All should be well. And yet this morning, perhaps God wants to have a desire within us to unravel the appearances and get to the heart of worship, our hearts. For we see, as the prophet starts out on listing those reminders, those concerns, he says in verse 2, they act so pious. They come to the temple every day and seem delighted to hear my laws. Every day, a packed program, a busy church. They seem to be delighted. I would call, in my tradition, people who are interested in a daily understanding of God, but only seem to be delighted, sermon note-takers. Have you seen it before? People, they get out their pen or they get the latest DVD when something of importance is being said and they write it down. They put it in their file. They make sure they have amassed information. They have notebooks full of the preacher's points, but words on, on paper are just that. For as we continue to look at verse 3, they now have something to say to God about their notes becoming action. We have fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed? That's, that's quite a big leap, isn't it? To suggest to God that we can even impress him. Sermon note-takers, taking action, attempting to impress God. And I believe we live in both a world of complainers, in this instance before God, and expectations. We think God is somewhat the same, that he expects something more from us than we can give of ourselves in the freedom in the knowledge that we are accepted people, that we are loved people, that we are forgiving people. For if we're thinking about fasting or whatever action it takes to come before God, we think of Jesus in the day of the Pharisees. From Matthew 6, we see that the Pharisees moved to fasting two times a week, twice a week, 
Would that impress God more than once a week? And they made sure that their, their fasting was done in a very, very public manner. Keeping up appearances. And so verse 2 continues in that desire of loving to make a show of coming to me and asking me to take action on their behalf. Status seekers, you may say. God listens to me, but he doesn't listen to you. God, you would take action on my behalf. You know who I am. And we begin to see, as we look at these verses, God is trumpeting out a call. That difference is not what it's important. It's the humility and realization that we are all in need of God. We become more conscious of wanting others to know of our deep consecration. And three continues with that. And it begins to say, we have done much penance and you don't even notice it. It's almost a form of play acting. It's the results of confession, penitent before God. And what do we want God to notice? Our willingness to ask for forgiveness rather than our deep sorrow. There's a subtlety here, isn't there? And God is saying to us this morning, are you truly sorry? Or do you know that if you come before God attempting to want to be forgiven? And, and I think this is something that we cannot work out carefully or clearly. Sometimes the desire of purity and need and request before God is not there. So we sit and we wait and we even say before God, my heart is not as it should be. Make me, silently now I wait for you. Make me what I ought to be. We see a people who are self-driven in this church or this God's people of Isaiah 58. It says you are living for yourself even while you are fasting almost self-driven, driven and not drawn to God. It's almost a church described, if I was in the Salvation Army preaching to maybe a few Salvation Army uniforms, I'd say it's the church of shiny shoes and press Salvation Army uniforms. Maybe for us this morning, it's a church trying to be ecclesiastically correct, an impressive image. But when it comes all to four, when it comes right down to it, that is almost a church that is unhuggable as we look at those first few verses. For verse four says, in spite of this wonderful appearance, you keep on fighting and quarreling. Your fasting is just making you hungry to fight and quarrel not to seek God. It seems that when we are feeling that way, we have to put on a better show. And so verse 5 says, you humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance. 
bowing your heads like a blade of grass in the wind. You dress in sackcloth and cover yourselves with ashes. The appearance again. Is this what you call fasting? Do you really think this will please the Lord? So it's an on-the-surface faith, not understanding that devotion of the heart comes when the Spirit comes and we have the freedom to stop, stop making the effort to look like something we are not. Well, the prophet helps us by giving us a picture of what will lead us to a sense of a genuine church that listens to the Spirit. And it's all about how we relate to others. And if we were to spend time on verses 6 and 7 this morning, I can say this is what the general gist of it's saying. It's other people focused versus self-focused. It's freedom to give to others. It's not oppressing any longer the team. It's treating others with fairness. It's sharing. It's welcoming. It's giving the shirt off your back. It's not hiding from needs and walking on the other side. Friends, when I read that list and when I look at verses 6 and 7, it says to me this is what we need within the body of Christ. But this is what the Christians in Iraq need this morning as well. And somehow God is saying to us, I'm preparing you as a church in the company and the community of the beloved to embrace the world. The way we love one another, as the prophet identifies for us, is the way the world longs to be loved. And it says if you love and care for each other in that way, your salvation will come like the dawn. You'll wake up on a Monday morning, and it'll be a new dawning. You will have a sense of joy. You, as my friend Don Pastersky says, you will live right while righting wrongs. And verse 10 provides for us a wonderful sense of freedom that light will shine out from our darkness. Light will shine out from the darkness of the world. You will be present in the darkness. You will be like a well-watered garden. And so sometimes we want to understand what the Spirit is saying to us. But we need the properties of the Spirit as well, that refreshment, that which makes us not only hearers of the Spirit, but refreshed in it, those well-watered gardens, not just planting the bulbs and hoping they'll come up, the nourishment that the Spirit gives us. And the wonderful way in which this generationally provides for us as a congregation, it says parents will pass this on to their children in verse 12. Your children will rebuild the deserted ruins of desperation. We might have a young person this morning that will work at the United Nations and will be prepared to deal with the Iraqs of this world. And look at the deserted ruins. Or it might be in Regent Park in Toronto. Or it might be the up-and-ups in our society who don't understand a church other than a building.
What is the generation that's coming forth for us this morning? Well, the Spirit says, enter the realm of the difficult questions. When images of children in their father's desperation are being thrown off mountains. I want to share with you in closing this morning something that became so evident to me, and I've been reminded of it again this week. For five years, I was the leader of the Salvation Army in Canada, and we attached Bermuda. That's part of our territory. And I recall when I received a phone call from the world leader of the Salvation Army in London, England. He said, Christine, I have a dream. I have a dream that the Salvation Army will go back to its roots and commence what I want to call an International Social Justice Commission. Now you think the Army's involved in justice, yes it is. But it became so caught up in reaching out into the world that social services, the serving with others on behalf of others, became almost our full-time role as well as our churches. And asking the question why was not as important as bringing in the victims of the whys. So he said to me, we need to start asking why again. The Salvation Army had been a member of the UN and civil society since 1948. And it had in some ways diminished its voice it's crying out in the headlines. And it was a very caring, as you know, way of embracing society. And this general of the Salvation Army said, I want to blast the trumpet, not in a concert of a nice brass band. And you're going to do it, Macmillan. So it was the last week of my time in leading the Salvation Army in Canada. And I found myself in Vancouver. And Vancouver was a very well-known city for me, for when I was ordained with the Salvation Army, I was sent to Vancouver, worked in an addiction treatment center, and started a street ministry in the downtown east side of Vancouver. It was also there that I was uh, received in the Canada and Bermuda Territory by the general and made the leader of the Salvation Army in this country. And they said to me, the congregations of Vancouver, we want you to talk about your new ministry. We decided we would establish it in New York City, 10 blocks from the UN, we had a building. And I confess to you, I had no idea what to say. I had a lot of words on paper. I'd taken a lot of notes in my conversation with the general on four occasions flying back and forth to England. I was dry. I didn't know what to say. So it was Saturday night and I, I figured I was speaking on Sunday. I need a better sleep than I need to craft words. And I couldn't sleep. So I turned on the radio. You know those talk shows, they lull you to sleep? I turned it on, I thought, I'll, I'll sleep. Just listening, I'll nod off. And sure enough, I did. 
At two o'clock, I woke up. I didn't know it was two o'clock. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven for I heard this wonderful music. <laughs> I didn't really think that. But I recognized as I took away the sleep from my eyes that the station had changed. I'd been asleep for a couple of hours. And there was a, a song being sung. And we're going to sing it in a little while. I, the Lord of sea and sky. That's not what grabbed my attention. What grabbed my attention were the words that were in the chorus. Here I am, Lord. It is I, Lord. I have heard you calling in the night. And I said, that's it. That's my job description. That's my mission, is to hear God calling in the night. And so I got out, turned the light on, got out the pen, started to write, thought about Jacob, who found himself in the night call of his own life, sleeping on a stone pillow. That's my call. I want to sleep on a few stone pillows and be restless with this world's concerns. I don't want a soft, comfortable life. And so as I thought about that, it was absolutely incredible that I found myself in New York City where the Salvation Army was going to have a large gathering with 700 of the wealthiest people in New York as a fundraiser. And the guest speaker on that occasion was going to be Bill Clinton. And included in the program was an introduction of yours truly, Christine McMillan, by the world leader of the Salvation Army on a video. And fortunately, in the presence of Bill Clinton, all I had to do was stand, and people had to know who I was. I thought as I sat at this table, where's Bill Clinton? There was an empty seat beside me. And he himself had three speaking engagements on that evening. And sure enough, we saw him not eating his beautifully prepared meal. He came on stage, and he is a masterful communicator. And he absolutely knew who he was speaking with. And so at the end of his beautiful talk about his foundation, about the world, he said, I want to share with you a verse of scripture. And I thought he's going to say in the presence of Salvation Army and friends and guests, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. And this is what he said. He said, it's Hillary's turn now. But what God is saying to me is, here I am, Lord. Well, you can imagine the chills that went up and down my spine. I wanted to jump out on that platform of Clinton and say, I'm with you, brother. I'm with you. And so I wrote him a note a few weeks later, because we have a song in the Salvation Army, Here I Am, Lord that references that scripture. And I sent him the song. 
on a CD. And he wrote me a lovely note, not a formal letterhead note. And he signs it, Bill Clinton. What is God saying to us this morning? Here I am, Lord. God wants to take our appearances and say, let them go. They're unnecessary. Become that well-watered garden that the Spirit can provide for us and give to the world. And so as we think about that, we're going to turn to an opportunity to respond for on your order of service, we have an opportunity to say, Lord, here am I. Heavenly Father of all, we hide ourselves behind masks away from the world and judge others for the masks we see. We quarrel and fight, concerned about our own idea of what justice should look like for us. We clothe ourselves in false humility and look down on the lowly. You see us and you know us and you love us, God. You call us to a life beyond ourselves to know you and to know who you made us to be.